This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. you please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We'll pick up where we ended last time at verse 12 of Acts 5 and then continue on through the end of the chapter at verse 42. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them into the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, And the chief priests heard these things. They wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. 
For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from those men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and he blessed in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit that filled your church to do these great signs and wonders recorded here, you would ready our hearts to receive your word, that you would give us the boldness and the courage to be your people in a hostile world, to take the name of Jesus where it has not been heard, to devote ourselves to the teaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we looked at a difficult matter in the life of the early church, the deception and the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. They had conspired to deceive the church, to obtain a praise and honor for themselves, which they were not due. And this violation of the purity of the church was so severe that God struck them down right then and right there in the church in front of everyone. In the time, while this was a difficult sign, it was still another sign of the Holy Spirit's power working in and through the church. In the time prior to the completion of the writing of the New Testament, these signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit served as the proof, as the validation of God's power and presence and purposes through his church. This began at Pentecost when the people were able to supernaturally communicate to others from all over the world in languages they did not know. We saw this in the healing done in Acts 3 by Peter and John at the temple of a man who had been crippled from his birth. Of course, that healing episode in chapter 3 did cause a problem. Peter and John, they were God's instruments to show the power of God to the people of Jerusalem gathered at the temple, but the temple was the most holy site of Judaism, the Jewish religion. And they were doing these works there in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the authorities of that place, the Sanhedrin, the high council of the Jews, they being the ones that hated Jesus and had conspired and put him to death, they took action against Peter and John and against the church. Now, they did this because Jesus was a threat to their power, 
to their religious traditions and teachings. The problem is, the church of Jesus Christ had real power. The Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them. They were really doing these signs and wonders. Whereas the Sanhedrin had no real power. Because they had abandoned the scriptures and the power of God. They wanted to pursue their own agendas and traditions and teachers. And so here these uneducated and uncredentialed Galilean men show up in the temple and they have real power, real signs and wonders that are indisputably of God. Even the council had to acknowledge that before. And this was a serious challenge to them. Now we saw that the Sanhedrin's prior solution in the face of this challenge was to simply try to ban the disciples from talking about Jesus and doing these signs and wonders in his name. Of course, this was a decree that the disciples had no intent of following. They went home after that ruling. They met together and they prayed that the Holy Spirit might empower and embolden them to continue in their bold public witness for Christ. The episode of Ananias and Sapphira while itself being another display of the Holy Spirit's power in the church, it's something of an interlude to this larger problem of the church's public witness and how it was challenging the norms and the customs and the religious leadership of Jerusalem. And that is the problem we return to today. As the disciples will not and have not complied with the iniquitous decree of the Sanhedrin, what is going to happen now? And so we will look at this passage today in three points. First, there is power in verses 12 through 20. We see that the church continues to do what she is called to do. She is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these signs and wonders. And the gospel is going forth. The church is helped by the Spirit in all these things. And second, there is a persistence in verses 21 through 32. We see Yet another round of conflicts with the Jewish authorities, but we also see that the church is not being dissuaded by them. And then third, we see a proposal in verses 33 through 42. We see that one of the Sanhedrin makes a rather surprising and fascinating proposal for how to deal with this problem of the church of Jesus Christ that they now have. So power, persistence, and proposal, those will be our points for this morning. So first we look at power in verses 12 through 20. So after the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira that we saw in the previous passage and the great fear that fell on all who heard of it in, in verse 11, we see the continued power of the Holy Spirit working through the church. We see the doing of many signs and wonders. Again, we saw before the healing of the man at the temple. We saw the speaking in tongues. We saw uh, God giving supernatural revelation. We have seen these signs, and these signs are continuing in the church. And we also see that the Christians continue to meet in Solomon's porch, the part of the temple where that healing miracle of chapter 3 had occurred. But we do see that after all of this, there is one major change, and we see it in verse 13. We see that none of the rest dared join them, that is the followers of Jesus, but the people esteemed them highly. So what has happened after this healing incident 
also this episode of Ananias and Sapphira, as it is now known that there is a societal cost to being a Christian and being associated with Christians. That decree of the Sanhedrin that no one was to teach or act in Jesus' name, the word had got out. That decree was likely published. And so these Christians, by continuing to meet and pray and speak and act in Jesus' name, they were directly defying the orders of their local governments. And many other people, though they realize that the power of God is with the church, they're unwilling to put their necks out. They're unwilling to be publicly associated with that. But they do recognize, the people do, that a good thing is happening here. They do recognize the power of God. They have favor towards the church, even if they're not participating in it themselves. There is that recognition that the followers of Jesus have real power and that their cause is good. But what we also see here in the fact that they don't participate, that they won't be named with, they won't join the church, we see also that the fear of man is powerful. The fear of punishment and sanction at the hands of the civil authorities is a powerful thing. And this is why it is better to have a society that tolerates Christianity and helps and encourages the church rather than one that does not. Because public and legal incentives do matter to people. Now, I say this in a day where many like to criticize and bash the idea of so-called cultural Christianity. Some even say it would be better if the church was persecuted, that it would cause more growth and more purity. That's just not the way life is. That's not the way the world works. It is better to be in a society where Christianity is accepted and encouraged than one where it isn't. This is why, for instance, in our Westminster Larger Catechism, in question 191, looking at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray that the church should be countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. This is in the petition where we pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. And that wasn't changed, by the way, when the Westminster Standards were revised for the American church. Now we do see that even though many here in Acts are afraid to publicly associate with the Christians gathered together at the temple, we do see converts are still being made elsewhere. We see in verse 14 that multitudes daily are being added to the Lord. Though this evil and iniquitous decree has gone forth, from these authorities and people are publicly afraid to be associated with the followers of Jesus, underground the movement is still rapidly growing. We see that people are being healed, not only in the same way that that man at the temple earlier was, but we see even that there's an intensification, there's even greater power, such that Peter's shadow passing over a sick person is enough to bring healing. We also see that this news and attention has escaped out of Jerusalem into the surrounding countryside. The sick people from all over are being brought in and healed. But of course, all of this will not go unnoticed by the authorities. And so they try once again to suppress the name of Jesus and the movement that is formed around it. We see in verse 17 that the high priest 
This would be either Ananias or Caiaphas, as they're both at various times referred to as the high priest. And they would have been the same, the same high priest and the same council that tried Jesus. The high priest rose up with indignation, joined by the Sadducees. Remember, they were the ones that had previously brought the charge against Peter and John for preaching the resurrection and for teaching the people without authorization. So the high priest and the Sadducees in the council, they're back for another round. They arrest the apostles and put them in prison. They were not willing to be defied in the way that they were. Perhaps they thought that putting the apostles in jail might cause them to behave. They might finally get the message. But the council is in for a rude surprise. We read in verse 19 that an angel of the Lord came at night and opened the prison door and freed the apostles. Not only did the angel free them, the angel commanded them to go back to the temple and continue to preach the gospel to speak the words of life to the people there. We see here that God is more powerful than the rulers who oppose him. He is able to deliver from persecution and even prison if he wills. And yet so many Christians are quiet. They're silent in our day. They're unwilling to challenge the spirit of the age for fear of what men might do. Now we might if we find ourselves on the wrong side of the law, realize that we're not going to be miraculously delivered from prison. But we can know that God is God even if we face persecution, if we end up in prison, or if we face shunning and ostracism and whatever other negative consequences that bold witness for Christ might cause. Because we know that Christ is with us and for us and ultimately will deliver us, if not in this life, then in the life to come. And so a challenge for us in this text is that we, like the apostles, like the early church, ought to continue to obey God and speak his truth with confidence, whatever the world is going to throw at us. And that is exactly what the apostles do. After power, we come to persistence in verses 21 through 32. So as that angel ordered them to do, the apostles go back to the temple the next morning, and they begin again to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. Now that had to make for a rude awakening for the high priest and for the other leaders of Jerusalem. They come in in the morning to have their trial. They send to the prison to have the apostles brought, only to be told, well, we guarded the doors. The doors were closed, but we go in to look this morning. There's no one in those cells. And then someone else comes in and tells them that the men who were supposed to be in those cells were, in fact, outside in the same spot in the temple, still preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. Let me just say, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that discussion. I'm sure that was quite fascinating to see and to get the reactions for what would have happened when the council realized that this, what was going on. But anyway, so the captain of the temple guard goes and gets the apostles. We read in verse 26 that they had to bring them without violence. They might have wanted to use violence, but they knew that if they did, 
It would cause a riot. It would cause an uprising among the people because the people were on the Christian side. Even though they wouldn't publicly associate with them, they were silently supporting them. So what we see here is that God has thus far frustrated the plans of his enemies. Once the apostles are brought in, the high priest questions them. He says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now that's an important statement, particularly that last part. If you would, hold your place in Acts and turn over to Matthew chapter 27. This is Matthew's account of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And something is said there that is very important for what we see here in Acts 5. I'm going to read for you Matthew 27, verses 20 through 25. But the chief priests and elders, so we're talking the same men that would have been on this council here in Acts, persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. You can now turn back to Acts 5. So what we see here is that the corruption and wickedness of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem is being laid bare. Just weeks earlier, they had plotted and carried out the murderous plot against Jesus. They even incited the crowd against him, got the crowd so riled up that they and the crowd together were screaming, were crying out that Jesus' blood should be on them. And yet this is the very thing they deny in Acts 5. Now, I don't bring this up to condemn them any more harshly than they are already condemned. I bring it up because many times the disciples had preached so far in the book of Acts, even to that crowd that had been there that night, that was in its own way responsible for the death of Jesus, and previously to the council responsible for the death of Jesus, They preach the facts about this. They put the blame and accusation for Jesus' death on them so that they might repent. Christ would save them even from and even for that. And yet this also shows just how weak and powerless the Sanhedrin were. They had to lie. They had to deceive to cover their tracks. They were hardened and persistent in their sin. They would not repent even as the Jesus they killed was alive and his works of power were being done by the Holy Spirit all around them. They had brought Jesus' blood on themselves and they knew it, but they would rather lie. They would rather continue in their old and dead religion of self-righteousness than turn to Jesus and live 
for Jesus would forgive them even for the act of killing him. That's the spiritual problem beneath all of their political and legal and logistical problems. So how do the apostles respond with Peter leading them? They speak starting in verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. So God had commanded them to preach Christ, and they were going to keep preaching Christ in Jerusalem. They continue, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So, to the charge that they sought to bring Jesus' blood on the council, well, yes, because Jesus' blood was on their hands. Just as they had done before with the crowds and with the council previously, the apostles placed the blame for Jesus' death directly on those responsible. But with this also, as they've done before, they proclaim the gospel of repentance and salvation, starting in verse 31. It says, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Yes, they killed Jesus, but Jesus is alive, and repentance and forgiveness of sins have come to Israel, even to the very people who persecuted and killed Him, if they would repent and believe. Thousands of Jews in Jerusalem had already come to faith in the Christ whom they had persecuted in the days and weeks prior. And then Peter and the apostles conclude, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they are God's witnesses. They are empowered by the Spirit, God living in them, and who the same Spirit who lives in all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And so they're not going to stop. They're not going anywhere. So having heard the apostles' defense, or more accurately, their defiance, how does the council respond? Well, after power and persistence, we come to a proposal in verses 33 through the end of the chapter. We see in verse 33 that the initial reaction of the council is one of anger and hatred and violence. Just as they had done before with Jesus, they plotted to kill the apostles. They were so hardened in their hearts and in their sin that they had already murdered to try to make Jesus go away, and they would do it again, many times over. Except on this occasion, cooler heads would prevail. In verse 34, we hear from Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees and council members. Now, Gamaliel, being on the council, he would have been an important Jewish teacher. We read that he's a teacher of the law. He's respected by all the people. He is also a Pharisee, so he wouldn't have quite the same set of complaints or grievances that the Sadducees and the high priest would. Now, we also will find out much later in Acts chapter 22, that Gamaliel, probably at this time, had a promising young student named Saul of Tarsus, who would later become a Christian and a missionary, but we'll hear more on that later. But this Gamaliel comes forth with a more reasonable proposal for how to handle this problem of Jesus' apostles. He asks for the apostles to be taken outside for a bit, and then he addresses the council and urges caution. 
He says, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. He then goes through a bit of their recent history. He first tells them about Thutis, a zealot who had raised up a movement of 400 people, but then was killed and his movement fell apart. He then tells of another zealot, Judas of Galilee, which had a similar outcome. The leader died and the followers scattered. So the implication here of what Gamaliel was saying is that Jesus' followers, with Jesus having been killed, because obviously the Sanhedrin was not going to believe in Jesus' resurrection, with Jesus gone, eventually this movement will give up and disperse. But then in verses 38 and 39, Gamaliel makes a very revealing statement. He says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So basically the point is, if, if these are just human troublemakers with their own agenda, the movement's going to fizzle out. Nothing more will come of it. But if it is of God, so note that he's at least leaving open the possibility that it is from God, they don't want to be fighting it. They don't want to be opposing it because they would be opposing God. Basically, Gamaliel's advice is commit the matter to God's hands. Now, it is sound advice, but it also betrays more than it intends. We have already seen and will continue to see that the power that the apostles have is from God. Really, already the the fact that Jesus died, he'd been gone now for a few months, and the movement around him has only grown, shows that this isn't the usual zealot problem that the council is used to dealing with. See, unlike Thutis and Judas, Jesus is alive. Many in Jerusalem had seen him. Not only that, but God had poured out His Holy Spirit, and by that Spirit, God's people spoke His words and did His works. They had real power from God, and that was on display, and that was what the powerless Sanhedrin was up against. Now, this also ought to be something encouraging to us. So many in our day like to attack Christianity. They say it's based on myths. They say it's based on stories that were made up. I mean, that could be true of Thutis or Judas, but do you see followers of Judas or Thutis anymore? I don't think you do, probably. But there is still a Christian church because God is with His church. The Holy Spirit is with His church. And so it has continued. It continued to grow even beyond those thousands in Jerusalem and continues down to this very day. Even here in Hamill, South Dakota, the gospel has come, the church has come, and the Spirit has worked. But it seems that Gamaliel's advice is sufficient for the Sanhedrin for now. They don't follow that advice exactly. They don't exactly leave the apostles alone. They beat them and then they threaten them some more and command that they not preach in Jesus' name. But they are released. Now how do the apostles respond? Have they finally seen the light this time? Are they finally scared straight, at least as the council would see it? No. 
We read in verse 41 that they leave there rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. Now that is quite a concept. I talk a lot about how we think about and handle suffering. Usually we just want our suffering to go away. But here we see God's people, when they suffer in and for his name, they're rejoicing. They're grateful. They're even thankful that they are worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. Because that's how great his name is. And how much more important and glorious Jesus is than our suffering and our problems in this world. Not only do they go away rejoicing, but they continue in the temple and in houses, so in public and in private, teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and of the world. And this is what a people filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit can do. They can resist the iniquitous and evil decrees and actions of men. They can stand boldly in the face of persecution. They could even face things like arrest and imprisonment and beating and suffering and even death because Jesus who died is alive. And he is the hope. He is the guarantee of eternal life to all who would repent of their sins and believe in his name. So the question is, do you have this boldness and confidence today? Maybe you don't because you don't know Jesus. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we could not, and he died the death that our sins deserved, so that by faith in him, worked by his Holy Spirit, we might be saved. So if that's you today, the call is to repent of your sins, to trust in him, receive his Holy Spirit, and the power that he brings. Now perhaps today you do belong to Christ, but you are beset by various trials and fears and doubts. You're facing opposition. You're facing resistance from outside. You wonder what people might say or do if you bear witness to Christ. And the world is putting pressure on you to conform to its will and its ways. Well, friend, God is all-powerful. His Spirit dwells in us. He is with us. He is for us all through this life and will deliver us into the life to come. So because of this, we can ask and receive more power and more of the Spirit's guidance and boldness to stand in the hour of trial, to even rejoice in the hour of trial and opposition and persecution because Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus Christ is worthy even as we are not. And so my hope and prayer is that we would all have today that confidence in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from sin and death. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in us that dwells in us, that illuminates your truth to us, that gives us the boldness and the strength and the power that we need in this life and fits us for the life to come. Father, I pray that we, your people, would have courage, would have boldness, 
to take the name of Jesus where it has not been heard, to stand faithful to you even in the hour of persecution and opposition. And I pray that you would order all things for the help and good of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.